You're listening to The Santiago Boys, the amazing story of a democratic tech utopia that could have been. I'm your host, Evgeny Marozov. In our previous episode, we learned how CyberSyn was increasingly under attack and from many sides at once. From leftists who distrusted it, from journalists who ridiculed it, and even from engineers who misinterpreted it. And we saw how its makers struggled to persuade Allende's government to adopt the system, with Allende himself feeling increasingly isolated. Coming up on this episode, even more drama and intrigue. Stafford almost abandoned CyberSyn, going on in a spiritual quest as a hippie rebel. Fernando Flores, in turn, is threatened by someone who wants to take over the project. And we'll also hear about the last meeting between Allende and Stafford, the meeting before everything would change forever. Stay with us. Che bello, arrivo al weekend. Tu che programmi hai? Io, tre giorni di concerti, avventure in VR, calcetto con droni e molto altro. <laughs> Mi prendi in giro? Che vivi nel futuro? Non ti prendo in giro. Dal 13 al 15 giugno il futuro arriva a Bologna. Al WMF We Make Future, la fiera sull'innovazione, puoi seguire oltre 100 eventi. Talk, concerti e show. Beh, allora vengo anch'io al WMF. Dai, prendi il ticket. È un'offerta a partire da 9 euro. Ci vediamo a Bologna Fiere. Vai su wemakefuture.it They had a vision of a new kind of socialism powered by computers, the Santiago boys. But things are falling apart in their Chile. The economy is crashing, the streets are dangerous, and those milk spoons, well, they aren't helping it either. Milk itself is harder and harder to come by, especially when people are eating the cows instead of milking them. And then something happens that chokes everyone. The biggest copper miner in the country goes on strike. The mine that belongs to the government. The mine that Allende needs in order to fund his revolution. It's a disaster waiting to happen. El Teniente is a mine, a very strong mine that is a little bit to the south of Santiago. This is Sergio Bitar, then Allende's Minister of Mining. The problem there was that one leader of the Socialist Party, among the workers, led the strike against Allende. This is what Allende's revolution has come to. Members of his own party are now striking against him. And the workers are joining them too. The opposition sees an opportunity and wants to take advantage. A nationwide protest is already in the works, with hopes of repeating the transportation strike. And now the miners are even marching on Santiago, ready to make their voices heard. Now, a few weeks later, as they come to compromise with Allende and return to work, it seems like the conflict might finally be resolved. But just as things start to calm down, the situation takes a turn for the worse. Reports of attacks and intimidation against the miners begin to flood in. Meanwhile, the technicians of those mines continue their protest, and the battle for production grinds to a halt. The usual split between the workers and experts rears its ugly head again. It seems that Allende just can't get both of them on his side at once. Sergio Bitar, with his Harvard education and his highbrow credentials, finds himself struggling to tame this chaos. There was no a vision of a process of uh, Rhythm. And if things weren't bad enough, the opposition votes him out of office. With the country in turmoil, can Allende master the strands to fight back? And how many will follow him? Amidst growing violence, the Santiago boys are confronted with a brutal reality. Their Talix networks are no match for the terrorist networks of their enemies. And many of those enemies come from Patria Libertad. As usual, they are planting bombs and sabotaging crucial infrastructures. And many of their tactics are very similar to those that the CIA used in Cuba in the early 1960s, in that notorious Operation Mangoose. Gabriel Rodriguez recalls the intense psychological toll of constant terror. This is, has never, never happened in this country. Uh, one thing is putting Miguelitos uh, on the road in order for the trucks to get stopped, but something different, and when you, uh, you have these uh, bombs uh, exploding uh, in different places. The tension in Chile's political arena mounts with each passing day. The government coalition struggling to maintain its unity against violent attacks. The conflicting viewpoints of Salvador Allende 
and his daughter Beatrice, reflect this growing schism within popular unity. Tanya Harmer explains. The differences between Beatrice and her father are really, really boiled down to, to differences over how they might begin to prepare most effectively to meet a potential coup uh, against the government. We are back to the long-running debate about people's power versus technocrats' power. These divisions are, are on the one hand between those who believe that um, in order to prepare for a coup, the best thing is to mobilize supporters, to prepare militarily, to covertly start stockpiling weapons, and to really move forward without kind of negotiation or hesitancy. That's really Beatrice's side. But Ayanda takes a different tack. He opts for negotiation with the opposition and, of course, the military. He still thinks that they will eventually respect the constitution and that his way of doing things, the peaceful one, will be able to prevail. Project Cybersyn is not immune to all this turmoil. There are now competing visions of what exactly cybernetic software is supposed to do. Stafford Beer thinks it's a tool for the people. Others on the team take a more limited view, seeing it as nothing but an experimental tool for managing the economy. And a prototype, really. And a technocratic one at that. That conflict of a vision and strategy could tear Cybersyn apart. How will they resolve it? And will they? As Chilean leftists cannot seemingly agree on anything, their far-right opponents are ramping up their terror. A Chilean graffiti bearing the menacing logo of Patria Libertad gets crawled across the walls of President Allende's own residence. It's a stark reminder that no one is beyond their reach. Not even the president. Carlos Senna, the latest Brazilian addition to the Cybersyn team, is already bracing for the worst. It's almost like he's reliving the prelude to the 1964 coup back in his native Brazil. A coup that set the stage for brutal torture by the new military regime and, of course, for his own exile. Intec, the Institute de Investigaciones Tecnológicas, was threatened by the Patria Libertad, the right-wing armed group of the right. And so I was invited to join the, the technicians who would defend the Institute, who would, be, who would keep armed guards during the night. Carlos may have lived through one coup already, but it's obvious that no training or experience could match the lethal weaponry of groups like Patria e Libertad. The Santiago boys find themselves woefully outgunned. They had machine guns and they had bombs. And I was given uh, a hunting rifle with some cartridges. How could I, with a, with a hunting rifle to kill birds with a field cartridge, face fascists with bombs and machine guns? It was completely nonsense, rubbish. Carlos and his friends might not have the most formidable arsenal, but they do have one secret weapon. The girls, the institutes, they helped us uh, providing some empanadas, delicious empanadas. And yet, they opt for cocktails of Allende's red wine. But cocktails of a very special kind. They did multiple of cocktails, they had the bottles, they, they have the, the elements, everything. So they provided multiple of cocktails and he kept guards with hunting rifles. But can these nerds truly go toe-to-toe with Molotov cocktail veterans like Mike Townley of Patria Libertad? After all, he's still the unchallenged cocktail kingpin of Santiago. As Sebersen gets mired in red tape and internal debates, Stafford Beer has taken up another bold venture, Project Cyberfog. By broadcasting debates from the operations room and measuring public opinion, he's hoping to deepen democracy and truly revolutionize politics. It's something of a sibling to Project Cybersyn, much smaller in scope, but very big on ambition and vision. As, of course, is usually the case with Stafford Beer. His aim is to use the charmingly named Algedonic Mirror, a gadget designed by his son, to create a feedback loop, a loop between citizens and politicians, something which could transform politics as we know it. Everything will become interconnected, with citizens and politicians taking cues from each other and responding to feedback in real time. 
This will mark the beginning of a true participatory democracy in Chile, a cybernetic democracy. The workforce knows that the president knows how they feel. And worse, the president knows that the workforce knows that he knows. And so you can go on indefinitely. Stafford claims he has sold Allende on that idea, but other priorities intervene. I've never found anybody else with the guts to try. Stafford is also bringing cybernetics to the masses with a passion and enthusiasm that's truly infectious. I got into very close friendship with a number of the leading Chilean uh, singers, guitarists, songwriters, and I even wrote songs myself about cybernetics, would you believe? He's even looking to Cuba. Yes, Cuba, for inspiration. We wanted to use slogans because Chileans uh, were very aware of the role that these had played in the uh, Cuban uh, government. For this British management consultant, touting Cuba as a moral is a very bold and provocative move. It's as if he's deliberately trying to provoke his peers at the esteemed Athenaeum Club. It's really not the kind of place that would host a book talk by Fidel Castro. By then, this father of eight, yes, we are talking about Stafford, has another thrilling Chilean adventure in his mind. And this adventure involves more than just sightseeing. His daughter Vanilla remembers him broaching this delicate subject. One of the things we discussed was the possibility of, of him uh, fathering a child in Chile. He was, um, he was quite keen on the idea. He'd been invited to become a father there. I can give you a list of my friends uh, at that time that can ask for a baby for sure. Huh? Gabriel Rodriguez confirms that in those days, Mapu's sexual revolution was in fact in full swing. The Mapu was a network of people getting, uh, not married, but sharing beds, let's say. So, and Fernando was part of that. And all my friends were part of that. This political party, Mapu, does sound like a lot of fun. A mix of Marxists, hippies, and technocrats. As fate would have it, Stafford's grand entrance occurs just in time. He was a fascinating guy for people in Chile, like us. Huh? Enormous beer and, and with their belt, and, 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 and he's talking and he's drinking. So probably he was involved on that. That's not probably. 100% sure. The, the, the question is, how many? And that, that's the real question. Stafford Beer's romantic pursuits are overshadowed by his efforts to defend himself against accusations of being a power-hungry technocrat. Now, I have been very much blamed for doing this, and I resent uh, the blame I've had very much. I've been told that uh, I centralized power for Dr. Yende. Uh, this isn't the case at all. Is it a classic case of misunderstanding? Stafford's critics might just fail to see that the centralizing features of CyberSyn are largely due to the limitations in computer technology and the resources available. Is their vision of having a computer in every factory really feasible in this country that is starved of resources? Sure, it's very alluring and Stafford agrees, but it's just not feasible in a Chile that is struggling with crisis on so many fronts. As Stafford points out in an interview, and I quote, Chile just cannot afford to dole out a ration of computers, for its prior problem is to dole out a ration of milk. End of quote. Well, well put. As Stafford points out, there is really nothing deliberately autocratic or authoritarian about the setup. These data were not used uh, in an autocratic fashion at all. Uh, they all went to one computer because we only had one computer. And if you've only got one computer, then ipso facto, you're centralized. But we were not centralized in the uh, political uh, sense in which this has been taken up by some critics. Besides, he readily concedes that it's the Chilean workers who are the ones with the most comprehensive knowledge of their factories, as well as the processes that are happening within them. That's why the cybersyn engineers go and interview them right before making those quantified flowcharts. There is no one better qualified to model a plant than the man whose life is spent working in it. He knows. We have constructed a little tool in the quantified flowchart. And in handing this tool to the workers, 
We have no technocratic problems. It may seem problematic that cyberscene experts lead the modeling activity in each enterprise. But this technique goes back to Stafford's days in the steel industry. Back then, he hired experts in disciplines such as anthropology, zoology, and even Kantian philosophy. And they would dissect the steelworks through techniques learned in those fields. So the idea of a socialist utopia somehow dedicating time and resources to teach its workers about Kant, or zoology for that matter, solely for the purposes of modeling a caramel factory sounds a little bit far-fetched. But even if that comes to be, what about, say, chemistry and physics? Shouldn't the emancipated workers trust at least some experts? The crux of the disagreement here is whether management cybernetics is pure science, as Stafford seems to believe, or pure class warfare, as his leftist critics argue. The truth, as always, lies somewhere in between. There is something about the British critique of cybersyn that doesn't feel quite right. Is cybersyn exclusively for managers, as its critics claim? In a sense, of course, yes, because Corpus technocrats ultimately initiate and oversee it. But it's important to remember that in Allende's Chile, Corfu itself is being democratized, with unions even appointing members of its board. In principle, the workers can have a say in the redesign of the project, even if they played no role whatsoever in its conception. That, at least, is what the future holds. It's a classic chicken and egg scenario for Stafford and his opponents. Should you prioritize worker liberation first and then create a project like CyberSyn that caters to their specific needs and wants? Or do you start with a technocratic version of the project and only then gradually democratize it to meet the workers' real expectations? This debate, unfortunately, doesn't get settled. As the Chilean leftists debate some of these abstractions, the right-wing military is quietly plotting their next move. There are whispers of talks between the Chilean Navy and the Chicago boys, focusing on the post-Allende economy and how to run it. The Navy needs a blueprint of some kind, and the Chicago boys are happy to start working on one. And you can remain assured that it would be heavy on free markets and privatization. And the CIA, too, intensifies their effort. David Phillips, a veteran operative with a track record of success in Guatemala and Cuba and Brazil, has been tasked with weakening Allende. But with the stakes higher than ever, how far would he go to accomplish his mission? Phillips earned his reputation as a Cold War innovator and something of the CIA's own gossip czar in the run-up to regime change in Guatemala in 1954. We actually talked about it before on an earlier episode. Remember when Che Guevara, then just a humble doctor, found himself in Guatemala, observing its progressive government locked in a bitter struggle with the United Fruit Company? Well, eventually that firm mobilized its many friends in the CIA, and they trained a whole force of rebels that were keen to march on the capital. The numbers were relatively small, but this is where David Phillips came in. He leveraged the power of dark tech to make these rebels look like a real threat. Phillips employed a clever media strategy, radio transmissions, political songs, graffiti, and even disguised operatives who were distributing battery-powered radios throughout the country. And there was a very good reason to distribute all those radio sets. A covert radio station established by Phillips was disseminating what we now call fake news duping the population into thinking that the opposition and this rebel force were actually much stronger and larger than they actually were. In fact, the president was eventually forced to step down, and the nation spiraled into a bloody civil war, a civil war that took hundreds of thousands of lives. And now it's very tempting for David Phillips, the mastermind behind it all, to try some of the same tricks on Allende's Chile. Guatemala, Cuba, Brazil. It's as if the CIA was mobilizing every trick it has learned in previous operations against the Chilean leader. How could Stafford's cybernetic software possibly protect Allende? And just weeks after taking office, Phillips does find himself facing a military coup in Santiago. The first sign of trouble comes one morning at the end of June 
when a rogue officer leads a small but dangerous unit downtown, they do want to take on the government. The numbers alone are not enough to send a chill down anyone's spine. Not unlike in Guatemala. Six tanks, ten armored vehicles, and a group of just 80 soldiers. The fact that these soldiers are cooperating with Patria y Libertad adds a dangerous new element to the mix. Besides, who really knows how many mutinous units are there in the country? Allende calls on the workers to take over the factories and come to his defense. And some of them do answer the call. But sadly, it's not the mass mobilization he's been hoping for. The Chilean journalist Alfredo Sepulveda reflects on the events of that day. But the coup is opposed by the commander-in-chief of the army, General Prats, and his second-in-command, General Augusto Pinochet. And you can see the pictures of June 29th, in which Pinochet, dressed in army suit, and army combat suit, um, appears with the commander-in-chief in the army, suffocating this uh, coup attempt. It's incredible. The mutiny lasts a harrowing four hours, leaving a trail of death and destruction in its wake. 22 people lose their lives, and 50 more are wounded. It is kind of a triumph for the government because everybody was fearing a coup, and the coup had happened in June, okay? And the coup had been uh, quashed, and the government was still in charge of the country. But even as Allende survives this onslaught, the victory feels bittersweet. For now, his enemies have seen how weak and few his supporters truly are. They have also seen what they are likely to do in the case of a coup. And, who knows, they might actually use that knowledge to their advantage next time. There is a curious footnote to this coup, though. It might be that Americans were involved in helping the coup plotters. And now some people in Washington, most likely in the CIA, are busy trying to find ways to extract them. In desperation, they may have even turned to MI6, Britain's infamous secret service. Note the irony here. It's the kind of mission that the young Stafford Beer may have been asked to undertake himself, at least back in his military days. This brings us to a very interesting point that, so far, we have somewhat neglected in this podcast. From fighting for queen and country to advising a socialist president in Latin America, Stafford Beer has done it all. In fact, his unusual career path is a bit of a head-scratcher. The contrast is so stark that it backs for close examination. You already know the basics. Towards the end of the Second World War, Stafford is stationed in India. I was making logical models of the problems in India of... Uh, the expected problems of the takeover in 1947 when the British Raj disappeared. I was one of the last people to leave India, as a matter of fact. The notes from his officer training days in Bangalore offer a glimpse into the unique skills that he acquired during this time, from making explosives to using photography in order to survey enemy terrain. Stafford is stationed in India with the Gurkha rifles, they're this military unit composed of soldiers and officers, mostly from today's India and Nepal. Its history stretches back to the days of the East India Company, the ITT of the day, if you will. And even after India and Nepal gained independence, some Gurkha soldiers chose to remain in the British Army. Loyalty to the Crown runs deep in the veins of the soldiers, and Stafford shares many of their biases. Perhaps it's for this reason that he had this very ambivalent feelings, even about someone like Gandhi. We have a tape of him reflecting upon those times. Um, the sound quality is not ideal, I must warn you, not least because it's part of a conversation that's happening inside one of Stafford Beer's favorite pubs in Wales. So bear with us. I saw Gandhi twice, and at the time I thought that he was a regressive force. Regressive force. That's what he calls Gandhi. Yes, Gandhi, the much-admired fighter for Indian independence and a keen practitioner of civil disobedience, 
a figure admired by many around the globe, and of course in Latin America. But as Stafford returns from India, something shifts within him. His enthusiasm for the empire has waned. So when the Suez Canal crisis hits in 1956, he's that against lending his expertise to defend British interests. At the time of Suez. Yes, because I was listed. You see, I've been in the Gurkhas, so I was a crack infantry officer. I'd been a staff captain in intelligence, therefore I was listed as an intelligence waller. And, and I'd been in the Department of Psychology and could have been regarded as a, a brainwashing type. So, just to make sure that you caught what Stafford was saying in that pop conversation, his army job was in intelligence, and he feared that, during the Suez crisis, he would be called to work as a brainwashing type, helping to spread propaganda to defend the British Empire. He may have done it a decade ago, but not anymore. Stafford's attempts to explain his beliefs to his conservative father fall on deaf ears. The old man wants to hear none of it. For Stafford, it seems to be a traumatic experience, which might explain his later rebellion against the British elites, of which, of course, his father was definitely a member. I said to him, I wish you to know I'll go to jail. I'm not going to do this. And he was appalled, and we never recovered our relationship. Thus, as soon as that invitation from Chile, from Fernando Flores and Corfo, lands on his desk, it probably feels like the final opportunity for redemption. A chance to make amends for the wrongs carried in the name of the British Empire. So it's not that surprising that Stafford actually jumps at it. Now, Stafford may not have been a fan of Indian independence or its leaders, but he did admire the country's rich spiritual heritage. My professors of philosophy had told me that Eastern religion, uh, they didn't know about it. I immediately, as soon as I got to India, apprenticed myself to a guru. And this was before the Beatles, you know. I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't uh, the in thing to do. And I started learning about Vedantic philosophy, and I started studying yoga as from 1946. It wasn't until he arrived in Chile that Stafford's spiritual side started coming out of hiding. Late at night, he would leave his luxurious Sheraton suite to meditate at a nearby ashram. When he was in India, I saw some pictures he showed me. He looked like a real Indian Hindu. Sonia Mardozhevich is a rare woman in the male-dominated world of cybersyn. She speaks very good English, and she's been serving as something of Stafford's assistant on many of these trips. But her English is not the only thing that makes her stand out. As a member of Chile's spiritual counterculture, Sonia introduces Stafford to a host of fascinating characters. I don't think one can understand Stafford Beer without that experience. I'm sure of that. He's a cybernetics, but he is also an Indian. I couldn't have understood him if, if I didn't have these two ways of approaching life. Stafford's Chilean jobs are always short and sweet. A week, perhaps 10 days. But this time, Stafford is throwing caution to the wind and committing to a six-week adventure. That's right, six whole weeks. And to end to the intrigue, he won't be lounging in his usual Sheraton. Vanilla beer reminds us of the context. He very delicately let me know that he might be in danger. They moved him away from where he'd been working. What danger could this be? Perhaps all those terrorist attacks by Patria Libertad had something to do with it. Or maybe those media articles turned him into a Hollywood-style villain, at least for those opposed to Allende, including, of course, some in the military. As a result, the Sheraton is not really an option. Its halls are already filled with the whisperings of Allende's enemies, plotting and scheming against the president's rule. Allende's opponents are, in fact, regularly meeting there to conspire against him. Instead, Raúl Espejo gets Stafford a house in the small coastal town of Las Cruces. 
but it's far less glamorous than it sounds. No parties, no bars, nothing. Gabriel actually lives in Las Cruces, and he notes that it is usually very austere, especially in winter, which is when Stafford happens to be visiting. There was no supermarket, nothing here. It was a very small place where people live inside their homes. This house is a far cry from Stafford's cybernetic gilded cage back in the stockbroker's belt. And yet there is something undeniably alluring about the simplicity of it all. Raul Espejo often visits Stafford's there. At the bottom of the path, there was uh, this restaurant run by working class people. And that's where the telephone phone and where he received uh, uh, information and uh, in the end spent a good deal of time with them and had the most beautiful empanadas and red wine. (laughs) It doesn't take long for this towering and bearded figure to attract attention of the locals. And with his poor Spanish, he stands out like a sore thumb. That's what Vanilla remembers her father telling her. Because Stafford was so big and bearded and weird, they all thought he was a devil. Stafford's visitors in Las Cruces are treated to a sight that is both captivating and serene. With a notebook in hand, Stafford is sitting by the ocean, busy calculating the movements of the waves as if trying to decipher some hidden code. Well, Stafford is lucky to have the time to be studying the waves, but Fernando Flores cannot afford such luxury. He's hard at work, still fighting his many battles on the economic front. He has set up a rudimentary operations room at the finance ministry, determined to stave off economic collapse. I almost don't speak with the Stafford beer in, in, in 73. Since I begin to be minister of economic, my life changed totally in Peru. What I have to do every day. Fernando's power is growing, and with that comes a swirl of intrigues. But one story in particular stands out, one involving Cybersyn and Stafford Beer. Someone is trying to take his baby away from Fernando, and perhaps also set Stafford against him. And somehow they're even trying to get Allende involved in this shady business. They tried to intrigue, they, they tried to produce some bad blood between me and Stafford, probably. It wasn't until years later that Fernando discovered the shocking reality behind this intrigue. I know that about a guy that I forget the name, that he would like to have my job in the cyber scene. That was a total jerk. This story is a bit of a puzzle. He would like to have Stafford beer for him. The guy don't have any job, but I know that he went to a meeting with Allende we did look into this character, the one Fernando describes as a total jerk. A ski champion from an affluent family, he's known to be quite the playboy. One source whispers of him having once been the lover of a famous Hollywood star, while another insists he's actually a CIA agent. Gabriel Rodriguez also remembers, but vaguely so, that something sinister was underway at the time. That was a person very close to Allende that came to visit me, interested in cyber scene, asking me about cyber scene. I said, why do you need to talk with Fernando? Can I trust this person or not? And what was strange, he moved very fast inside the government. I knew he was connected with Allende, but he was interested on the cyber scene, not through Fernando. But wait, there is more. In some moment, Stafford get connected with other person of politicians, Socialist Party, I don't know. And from there, he gets a direct relationship with Allende. But just how crazy did it get? In some moment during the 73, there was a split between Fernando and Stafford, and Fernando was very angry because Stafford started to move autonomously and doing crazy things, according to Fernando. Let's just say that Fernando doesn't think that Stafford is up there with Machiavelli. Stafford was a guy without any political talent. That's the part that you need to get. Not in Chile. It happened the same thing in his company. Still, things are not that simple for Stafford. He's put everything on the line for Cybersyn. His reputation, his career, his marriage, possibly his bank account. And now the bureaucrats of Corfo are actually standing in the way. With Fernando gone from the scene, he's left to fight his battles alone. But how? 
But what is driving Stafford to Las Cruces to begin with? Why isn't he in Santiago fighting with Corfus bureaucrats or trying to lobby on behalf of CyberSyn with Allende's government? Perhaps he sort of this stay in Las Cruces as a form of exile, a testament to his radicalization. He was now a political thinker, not just a management consultant, an expert in cybernetics. Or perhaps no longer a management consultant and an expert in cybernetics. And others seem to agree. Rulia Spechel, for example, does think that Stafford's political turn is a major reason for this stay. He had in his mind remaking the CyberSync project as a political project and not as a technological project. It's a most unlikely transformation. He came to Socialist Chile carrying a copy of Playboy magazine. That's the true story. But now he's poring over Mao's little red book like a true revolutionary. And it's not just reading. He wants to act upon all these insights. He fashions himself a political operator in his own right. And in Chile, a country that he didn't even care about just a few years ago. During that period, I was very close to him, and I knew he was trying to get hold of uh, politicians to make clear his views. Stafford is also on a mission to rework his original cybernetic model of Chilean economy. But it's proving to be quite the challenge. See, Chile isn't like this giant steel factory of his business days. It requires a more nuanced and political approach. It requires knowledge of history and intricate understanding of its political forces. It's a little bit hard for Stafford to grasp all of that just by observing feedback mechanisms. Mario Grandi also goes to Las Cruces, and there he finds Stafford neck deep in work. He says that Stafford was trying to fit in all the missing pieces of the model. And here we're talking about popular power, trade unions, jobs, all these bottom-up elements that he's been struggling to mash together. And for the first time ever, Stafford even writes an essay where he delves into Marxist theory. The intended reader of that essay is none other than Salvador Allende. Stafford's goal is to demonstrate how cybernetics can actually make Marxism work in practice. He can do it all, and he's bold enough to think that he can even teach Allende about Marxism, but the real kind, the one that would work with cybernetics and computers. Stafford's last cruises trip is going great, until it isn't. You know how it is, you're in some foreign land enjoying delicious empanadas when suddenly you get shocking news from back home. And that's exactly what happens to him. He receives news about his troubled son, Mark. Here's Vanilla Beer. So news reached the family, I'm not sure how, that Mark had been arrested for behaving very oddly with his friends. Apparently, it's a bit of a drug-related mishap. Mark was a very free spirit, and prison would not have done him any good at all. It's not the kind of news you want to receive thousands of miles away from home and in a house with no telephone. But one point of business must be settled before his departure. Stafford and Raul want more clarity from Corfo about the future of CyberSyn. The project may exist, sure, it might even be receiving all this negative media coverage, but in reality, it's more like a ghost. At this pace, it might need years to come to fruition. But, of course, time is the kind of luxury that Allende's government may not have. Although Corfo has not always been friendly to CyberSyn, some progress has indeed been made in recent months. An ex-general of the Air Force has taken up Fernando's position at Corfo. He gets the value of the real-time telex network, especially during a coup. Additionally, Corfo's directors have voted to move the operations room to the main premises, much to Stafford's delight. But after a couple of months, this still doesn't happen. After Rul updates Stafford on the room's worsening physical conditions, his frustration boils over. And so Raul pans this angry letter to Corfo. I am troubled that Corfo has shown scarce interest in using the advances achieved by Project CyberSyn. The industrial management continues using techniques and instruments that, in my judgment, are totally insufficient to meet the high complexity of planning the economy. And then he issues a soft ultimatum of sorts. 
If Corfu doesn't change its attitude, Cybersyn will be over. We are working in conditions that are absolutely unsatisfactory. Unless they are changed in the short term, I'll take it to mean that Corfo doesn't want us to continue with our tasks. Undoubtedly, we'll have to put an end to them. But strangely, Stafford is not threatening about Cybersyn hitting the Corfo wall. It looks like he's already detached himself from the project. In a letter that he sends around that time, he notes that his work there is done. As he notes, the use of Cybersyn, and here I'm quoting, as distinct from its creation and initial implementation, belongs to Corfus Court, and he even underlines the word use. Still, he's happy to help Raoul lobby on behalf of Cybersyn. That probably explains why Stafford goes to meet Allende right before leaving. And to be honest, we are left to wonder what exactly is said in that meeting. There is very little record of it left. But a week later, he drafts a letter to Allende, after, of course, he is already safely back to the UK. And it's in this letter that Stafford hints at what may have been discussed there in La Moneda. In this letter, Stafford continues to insist that workers need leadership and guidance. They need cybernetics. They need all of those methods that Cyberseed was trying to put forward. We took every possible step to develop an approach to model building which the workers could understand after a very brief explanation. The idea was that these models should be handed to them for development. This, however, is not happening, even in the enterprises where the initial models exist. Could it be that all of Stafford's sacrifices have been for nothing? The point of this letter is to say, however, that unless some set of solutions to these questions is adopted fairly soon, I think that all we have achieved may well be wasted. What was intended to be a wholly new approach to management on behalf of the workers may degenerate into an elitist set of sophisticated tools reserved for technocrats. Allende's response, if any, remains unknown. In retrospect, this latter does read a little bit like Stafford trying to cover his back, trying to leave enough of paper trail to prove that technocracy was the opposite of his intentions. This, at least, is what a cynic might say. For some, all these concerns about technocracy might seem completely disconnected from the real problems of the country. After all, the dark clouds keep gathering over Santiago, and the terrorist attacks show no signs whatsoever of abating. Nonetheless, the noble mission to restore Chile's technological autonomy, the initial big project of the Santiago boys, soldiers own. For now, the duty to promote it falls to Orlando Letelier, the former envoy of Allende to the US and presently the foreign minister of Chile. Just days after Stafford's rendezvous with Allende, Letelier makes his way to Lima, where he speaks about the politics of technology. And it's quite a speech, an address that still sounds extremely relevant today. We live in a world where the Roman concept of poverty, when applied to technology, leads to exploitation. We are witnessing an increasing concentration in knowledge ownership. Today, around 500 multinational companies control 90% of the world's productive technology. Letelier contends that this level of control translates to political influence, frequently creating conflicts within governments and corporations. Just look at Chile's own problems with ITT. These companies have the final right to decide whether a country can develop a new industry. Nothing can justify such power. Technology ought to serve humanity. Therefore, we must create radically different mechanisms through which underdeveloped countries would have access to technology and research. Letelier envisions a new version of the International Monetary Fund, but for technology, one that would be less US-dominated and fairer. It might seem like a bold, even crazy solution, but it's actually a very interesting way to address some of the past historical injustices. Injustices suffered by the poor countries 
due to the inferior position in the global packing order. In Chile itself, the prospect of this new global order seems increasingly out of reach, especially with the ongoing assault on crucial infrastructures like TV towers and the power grid. President Allende even has his national address interrupted by one such attack. And you don't need much to guess who's behind these attacks. After the failed coup, the Patria Libertad leaders flee to Ecuador, and then eventually to Brazil. Many of their operatives still remain on the ground in Chile, and they're happy to cause trouble. According to Roberto Simon, the Brazilian journalist, Brazil is where the leaders of Patria and Libertad receive training and perhaps even weapons. I interviewed the number two of the Patria e Libertad, who during the Allende administration, you know, he explicitly says that the, the group had, you know, an operational base in Brazil. The left tries to mimic these belligerents, of course, but comically so. A few Santiago boys even receive military training, including, by the way, Gabriel Rodriguez, who learns how to use a gun, albeit not very proficiently. That's what he confesses. I think I, 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 I fired one, one and I, I, I don't understand anything. You can imagine that using that to kill someone was absolutely impossible. It's a time of high tension in Santiago, with explosions happening frequently throughout the city. At the Ministry of the Economy, Enrique Farnea witnesses some of those explosions up close. It was opposite to the... Uh, my office was, and there was a Sunday, I remember clearly, and bam! We use, I mean, a small bomb that they put somewhere. And what about the military? Well, many of them claim that they will not stand for this level of disorder and violence forever. And yet there are whispers that some of the senior officers might actually be working with Patria and Libertad to cause all these attacks that later they themselves are denouncing. Yes, it does sound hypocritical, and of course it is, but the battle against Allende knows no ethical borders. But it's not just hypocrisy. Some of Allende's opponents in the military are willing to go much further than that. Some of them are even using a new law on arms control as an excuse to attack anyone they suspect of being a dangerous leftist. And one man is particularly zealous in applying it, Lieutenant Colonel Manuel Contreras. And he's a man on a mission to crush any dangerous leftists who are threatening Chile's stability. And his brutality would soon turn Chile into a true horror show. Contreras learned his skills from American military schools. It's there that he studied explosives, surveillance, interrogation. All those subjects were taught as a way of learning more about waging counterinsurgency than a very popular subject in the military academies. And Contreras is happy to put all that knowledge to good use when he comes back to Chile. In fact, his tactics are so violent that the leftist militants of Mir even demand his removal. That doesn't happen, and Contreras remains undeterred. In fact, he wants to ramp up the counterinsurgency operation. He believes that the only way to prevent global communism from spreading is to be as firm and resolute as possible in resisting its charms. But what is this counterinsurgency that he is so obsessed about? Well, its history is one of bloodshed and violence. Much of it has to do with the aftermath of European colonialism. Take Southeast Asia, not the only case, but one that is very telling. There, Britain waged a war against communist guerrillas. And they used many of the tactics that later came to be known as counterinsurgency. First, the British tried to win over the local populations with kind words. But when that didn't work, they had to turn violent. And they unleashed their fury with the help of elite regional troops, troops like the Gorkhas. Yes, the Gorkhas, the same troops where Stafford served in India. Contreras, on the other hand, wants to jump straight to the brutal and violent option. He doesn't believe that the hearts and minds approach is going to pay any dividends whatsoever. The war in Vietnam, if anything, proves that such kind of diplomacy is a lost cause. In his view, the only way to win is through ruthless force, and he's not afraid to use it. Even before Allende's election, Contreras was already writing articles where he talked about killing guerrillas and destroying their hideouts. He even talked about keeping civilians under surveillance. 
This man not only sees the world in black and white, but he has the instruments to act on his brutal vision. In one respect, Allende and Contreras agree. Chile is, in fact, a side of Vietnam. But while Allende sees the U.S. as a common threat between the two conflicts, Contreras sees something else. In his mind, the communists are winning in Chile, just like they did in Vietnam. And that's why he's on a mission to crush them. His own Vietnam won't remain silent for long. The screams and moans of the defeated will soon pierce the silence. Contreras will come to play quite a role in our story. Remember that name. But for now, Contreras remains unknown to most of the players of the Chilean game. As Stafford departs Santiago for London, another transportation strike breaks out. Gabriel Rodriguez once again must handle the situation, facing off against the shadowy leader of the Trakis Gremio. They have been friendly, but this time it's clear that there won't be any negotiations. Instead, his opponent tells Gabriel the bitter truth. Look, Gabriel, I will be very frank with you. This is not a transport strike. This is a political strike. He told me that we are going to a coup d'etat, no. He told me, this is a political strike. So you can offer me a lot of things, but there are things happening in other places. Out on the outskirts of Santiago, a desolate landscape emerges. Rows upon rows of trucks sit motionless, their wheels removed, the drivers looming ominously nearby. The strikers are not backing down anytime soon. The government's attempts to disperse them are mostly futile. The strikers may be hungry for change, but they are not exactly starving. In fact, they're indulging in a sumptuous meal that belies the harsh reality of their fight. A visiting reporter spots them feasting on steak, vegetables, and, wait for it, empanadas. It's a feast fit for a revolution, just not Allende's. The signs are all there, if you know where to look. Carlos Senna has seen them before, in his native Brazil, right before the coup. And he recognizes them now, in Chile. This was quite an, a training for perceiving things. And in Santiago, we could see, written on the walls, Jakarta is coming. With a heavy heart, Carlos knows that he has to make his escape. I was much less naive than Stafford, obviously. And I told him, Stafford, I will leave. I will not stay here. I have two kids. So, and I see that Allende is not arming the people. People has no weapon at all. How do you think they will face a right-wing coup, armless, without any weapon? So there is no, this is nonsense. I will not stay. It will be a, a genocide. Stafford understands the concern. But what solution can he possibly offer? As things get truly chaotic, Fernando gets yet another government appointment. This time, he gets to sit right in the presidential palace. He's now become Allende's general secretary, a role that's comparable to being something like chief of staff. But the situation is dire. Fernando is forced to navigate the treacherous waters between Allende and the military. And he knows that this time, he won't be able to rely on technology to save him not even on his magic cybernetic jacket. His mood is grim, to say the least. Because I know what happened with the other coup, I know the second coup is going to be a, a lot more nasty and more complicated. Fernando's eyes are drawn to the sky every time an airplane flies overhead, a sign of the anxiety that's constantly lurking in the back of his mind. A colleague notices him reading books on insurgency, insurgency in Vietnam of all places. Is he planning to join guerrilla forces here, in Chile, in Santiago, of all places? In another moment of desperation, Fernando asks his staff to find him a good book on geopolitics. The only one available happens to be written by a general, a general that Fernando has met in his government jobs, a general called Augusto Pinochet. Augusto Pinochet. Despite the unrelenting turmoil around him, Allende soldiers on with remarkable tenacity. Even the CIA resident gossip czar, David Phillips, is confounded by his resilience. He's even lauding it in an internal memo. It would seem the lower classes in Chile are still firmly supporting Allende. 
Against all odds, Allende's makeshift distribution network not only continues to function, but it seems to ensure that ordinary Chileans do receive the goods that they need. Certainly, the economic situation is going to have to deteriorate far more than at present before any significant number from the lower classes would consider leaving Allende. Allende's ability to survive the latest crisis leaves the CIA in a state of despair. None of our people in Chile has a strong solution to the Allende problem. All feel a sense of frustration. All continue to be impressed by Allende's ability to manipulate and to survive. All agree the army is the key piece in the puzzle. But what will the army do now that they do hold all the cards? As Allende fights to stay in control, he makes a bold move, inviting the military back into the cabinet. This decision has far-reaching consequences. One of them is that many of the generals are now working closely side by side with the Santiago boys. The military were much more involved. They work with me. It was incredible. I have this general in front of me. Gabriel Rodriguez is now sharing a desk with an important general, a general in charge of the whole Santiago area. We are working the same desk. He was in front of me. He arrived late in the morning, myself the same, and we were together and having the red phone here, and having conversations with La Moneda, and we were talking. We used the same kind of model. The problem is that the content was completely different. The general's opinions on CyberSend are truly anyone's guess. But the Chilean media has been sensationalizing the project to a ridiculous degree. They've made their British counterparts look like saints in comparison. One reporter, a friend of Raul's, got the story completely wrong. She wrote uh, two, three pages of an article whose uh, intention was to show that uh, Allende wanted to control the people. Fernando Flores is not impressed either. Now the, the newspaper and the Chilean, they try to see that we want to dominate the economy with this monster project. But I think that's a lot of caca there. The articles have spun a strange web of deception. Everyone now believes that Allende is equipped with a powerful cybernetic weapon. All despite the fact that the operations room itself remains empty and unused. It's cutting-edge gadgets and comfy chairs gathering dust somewhere far away from Corfo. Gabriel Rodriguez recalls. The central operation never, never operated. The military were convinced that they were, we were managing the whole economy through there. Stafford's cybernetic thinking was supposed to help Chile solve this problem. But did it? Take the primitive operations room in the food sector of the economy. It is inspired by Stafford's approach, so that much is working. But with no flashy screens or ergonomic furniture, the room relies solely on old-fashioned maps and charts. And for a while, everything is running smoothly. But when the crisis hits, it becomes clear that the room's cybernetic system is mostly useless. What good is the cybernetic system when all it does is simply confirming what everyone already knows? Yes, the economy is in a tailspin, and the decision-makers in the room are well aware of it. But the hands are tied by political impotence, a problem that the room's high-tech apparatus is powerless to change. One official, intimately familiar with Stafford's cybernetic method, later reflected on this dire state of affairs. He did it in an essay, and we're citing from it. In the last weeks of August, the upper niveau, the whole country was out of control, almost paralyzed by sabotage, by lockout of the private transportation firms, by total lack of fuel, by internal political struggles, etc. At that point, our information room was showing very clearly that every indicator was falling to zero, and all efforts to help the individual subsystems were useless. The official's conclusion is bleak, but hard to argue with. Any amount of gadgets and of technical support will be useless in an environment of crisis when the system reaches the level of collapse. In the aftermath of the media blitz surrounding CyberSyn, Allende's enemies have set their sights on the project. They want to deprive Allende of his secret weapon, or at least understand how it works. Rulis Pecho remembers that spy-like atmosphere. We were talking with uh, Stafford in a number of occasions about unusual people turning up. Clearly, they, they, they were interested in, in some of the things we were doing. The question in everyone's mind is, just who are the strangers lurking in Corfus' holes? 
And do they have any connections to people working on CyberScene itself? Well, that's likely. Inside the project, there is one weird guy called Miguel Ruiz Tagle, and let's just say he doesn't enjoy full confidence of Raúl Espejo. He was someone from a very clear right-wing extraction. So this Miguel guy is a Corfa functionary. He doesn't agree with the politics behind CyberSyn, but he is not blind to its potential benefits for Chile's struggling industry. These mysterious strangers are in for a rude awakening, though. The operations room, the crown jewel of the CyberSyn project, still hasn't made its way to the Corfa building. As the country spirals into chaos, Fernando's allies try to create a stripped-down version of the operations room in La Moneda itself. Meetings are held and measurements are taken, but with both Fernando and Allende stretched thin, it's unclear whether they'll have the time to see this project through. But at least they try. So the second transportation strike, as to be expected, has crippling effects on the Chilean economy. And the CIA notes a new problem in one of their memos. Allende's revolution of empanadas is suddenly running out of flour. Bread shortage appears to be worsening, with wheat stocks at Port Sant Antonio cut off by bombing of rail line to Santiago. There were several reports of Santiago bakeries invaded by mobs seeking bread. Still in Santiago, Carlos Sana decides that he's had enough of this revolution. For months and months, sometimes I found horse meat, and sometimes I find some awful Chinese sweets. This is what I find in the market. He books himself on a flight to Peru. I'm quite uh, desperate with this. I want to eat well and drink French wine. So I went to Air France and I, have, I had this ticket, which was uh, the flight of Air France, was on September the 11th. While the Cybersyn team are saying their final goodbyes to Carlos, Fernando Flores is consumed by urgent tasks elsewhere. A dark and unsettling mood weighs heavily on him as he races against time to stop a coup in the making. It was probably in a very, in a mood of what I will call, you can anticipate what is coming, you don't know exactly what it is, but the mood is there, and I, and I don't know what to do anymore. Knowing that the time is limited, Fernando confides in Mario Grandi and entrusts him with a crucial mission. On September 10th, Fernando tells Mario that a coup is imminent, with just two days left before it arrives. Mario must act fast and go dismantle the operations room before it's too late. As the hours tick away, the tension in Santiago becomes almost unbearable. It's late at night and Gabriel Rodriguez is still at the ministry, trying to deal with the effects of the strike. September 10, we were in the most critical part of the transport strike. So uh, we were in our office working with General Brady in terms of assigning the, the trucks coming from the Ford company, the Ford plant, etc. But as the night wears on, Gabriel starts getting the strange feeling that the country is on the brink of something much bigger. Suddenly, Italics arrives with an extraordinary request, sees all the trucks across all of Chile. Gabriel Rodriguez is stunned. And I remember I took my case and I went home and said, okay, this, I think this is something going to happen. As Gabriel heads out of the office, his military colleague shoots him a strange, knowing look. And the, and the General Brady, before we, we say goodbye that night, he told me, uh, anything you need, you call me. It's only the following day that Gabriel realizes the true meaning behind that ominous offer of help. On the next episode of The Santiago Boys, it's the end of an era and the start of a tragedy. Allende is gone, Pinochet is here, and nothing will ever be the same again. But how will The Santiago Boys cope? How will they protect Project Cybersyn and, of course, each other? How will Stafford Beer face his demons back in the United Kingdom? And what will happen to Allende's former ministers? People like Fernando Flores. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. 
Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. The Santiago Boys is a co-production of Cora Media and PostUtopia. Writing, research, development, and presentation, Evgeny Marozov. Music main theme, Luca Michele. Audio editing and post-production, Guido Bertolotti. Music supervisor, Luca Michele. Post-production producer, Matteo Salsa. The people helping with organizing, recording, and processing the interviews are too many to name here. I'd like to extend special thanks to Chiara Di Leone, Ekaitz Cancela, Nikolai Maximchuk, and Matteo Miavaldi, all of whom helped me in more than one way. Full credits are also available on the podcast website, the-santiago-boys.com.